0: I think the the number one thing for a leader is the ability to be impactful. Somebody who's got an opportunity where they can come in and have substantial impact um, almost immediately, where they look at a situation and say, based on the experience that I have, this company needs what I have.
1: Hey, everybody, it's Tony Moore from Winning at Work. In today's episode, you're going to learn three very important things. Number one, how and why you can or you should be pivoting a professional services company to take advantage of your strengths and becoming more profitable. Number two, the secret sauce that has to be present if you are trying to hire a top-performing VP, manager, or director, if this is not present, you will fail. And third, words of wisdom for any professional and or consultant who is working in the professional services space. Stay tuned. Winners always find a way to win. They adapt, they adjust, they pivot. No matter what negative circumstances they find themselves in, they find a way out and they win. And that's the perfect way to describe my guest today, Todd Warshaw. Now, Todd's a longtime friend of mine, but more importantly, he is the partner and shareholder of Bell Oaks Executive Search. They're based here in Atlanta, but they have a national practice. He's got a proven track record of building professional teams in a broad spectrum of industries. His particular expertise is in searches for C-level leadership, vice presidents, directors, and managers, and some specialized individual contributors across most business functions. Internally, he plays a significant role in shaping Bell Oak's vision and strategy for providing superior consulting services to its clients and candidates. Todd is also a frequent speaker with companies and educational institutions such as Georgia Tech and Emory's Guazetta Business School. He speaks on a wide range of topics, including choosing the right career for your talents, making strategic career decisions, and so on. He earned his degree in finance with a minor in real estate from the University of Georgia, the Terry College of Business. And before I welcome Todd in, I really do hope that you enjoy today's episode and that you really are enjoying the new pivot that Career Daily has made to winning at work. So if you love the content, subscribe, share it, get the influence of these great guests spreading to other people in your network so we can all benefit from that. Okay, Todd, welcome into the show. Before we dive in and get into your story and all the great things that you're doing, tell the audience a little bit about yourself.
0: So I've been in the search industry now for gosh, 22 years. And I i pivoted my career into the search business after being an accounting um, professional for almost 10 years, the first 10 years of my career. And I worked with the Atlanta Committee for the Olympic Games. And that was a great and fun opportunity. But when that was over, I decided that I didn't want to go down the career path that I had been educated for, which was accounting, and I got into the recruiting business and that's actually where I met you, obviously. (laughs) And but time flies, time flies. And quite frankly, I have been now you know, I have developed a very long successful career in this industry because I'm passionate about it, because I love it, and because it was a natural fit for me and you you probably could explain that better than me since I would say that you're one of the people that taught me th- this business when I originally entered it. So
1: clearly you have a passion and a kind of a unique style and approach. And I think it has enabled you to be very, very successful. And I think people can definitely take, you know, take a lesson from you. So that leads us to this idea of, of pivoting because you clearly pivoted once, you know, out of finance, uh, you still kind of use that, um, Educational background in part of your business, but you know let's talk about this pivot, but before we get into this, you know maybe just explain to us a little bit about what's happened to the search industry right I mean we've been in for twenty years this was pre internet, so kind of walk us walk us through what was life like before, and then all the changes that have happened to us since then.
0: Well, I think the most interesting thing that's happened since you and I entered this business is technology and where technology was when we started. So to give you perspective, when I started in this business, I didn't even have a computer on my desk. In fact, if you recall, we we, we had a telephone. We had a telephone and a phone book and we had resources that were all like encyclopedias. And that was how... We figured out who we we're going to call. We weren't – there was no such thing as Google. There was no such thing as – you know, the Internet was not what it is today, and it certainly wasn't the tool that we were using to come up with our call lists, whether it be for candidates or, or for client um you know, for marketing purposes. So I, I think what, what's, what I have noticed, uh, what's happened over the years and what I've seen is technology to expanding constantly every year that I've been in this business. But I will tell you, and this I think is a very important to note, a lot of people believe because of technology that what we do in executive search is less necessary. And I, I, I will tell you that I actually think it's even more necessary now because Why there's no... So much recruiting is done over the computer these days. There's so many resources, but the one thing a computer can't do and the one thing that that all these technological resources can't do is they can't have a heart-to-heart discussion with a candidate and drill deep and really get to know somebody and understand why they would be a fit for a job, not just what they're checking all the box of their qualifications, but really getting into their head and understanding why they've made the decisions they've made and, and, and profiling them in a way that without the personal touch, you, you you know, it's more of a check the box kind of thing. And I think recruiting today because of the internet has become such a check the box exercise, as opposed to a real deep dive into why a candidate would be a good fit for an opportunity. And so I think we're more necessary today than we were 20 years ago, quite honestly. I, th- I think it was, but I, I mean, I, I laugh when I think back to that. So when I first started at Bell Oaks all those years ago, I, I believe we were even mailing some of our resumes to our clients. Mailing. And then we got into faxing the resumes. Um, and just imagine that. I mean, imagine faxing a resume I mean, we, with a fax machine. Well, I, I think of younger people today, people that are in their late 20s, early 30s. I mean, they couldn't conceive of how we did business back then. Because it's just not, these younger people have grown up with resources that we did not have. But I have to tell you, the industry while it has changed a lot in the 22 years that I've been into it. The actual methodology of recruiting is not dramatically that different. It's just the technology makes it a little quicker and a little easier and a little, um, you know, it just speeds things up. But it doesn't change what we've done or what we do.
1: The business itself hasn't changed. The way maybe we go about doing it has changed. But you began you and some other people. I know you've you've made it very clear. You know you although you were the the tip of the spear with a lot of the changes that have happened at Bell Oaks. um, But kind of just walk us through a little bit. Why did you even see a need to change the way you were doing business? Because. The company was very successful. You were very successful. You're in a professional services environment. So kind of walk me through this, the the signs, you know, how did you even know that you needed to change?
0: Our business model, when you worked with me all those years ago, we were more of a placement agency. Um, we were a contingency firm. We, we basically got paid at the completion of a search. The positions that we were working on were, you know, staff level to some manager level. I mean, it wasn't like we didn't work on some senior roles, but most of the roles that we were working on back in those days were contingency searches, and it was, you know, kind of it was a numbers game. What has ha- what happened over time, and as I continued in this business, is as as we. Ch- we, we started, instead of hiring like we did back then, if you remember, we would hire a lot of young people right out of college or in their early to mid-20s, and it was kind of a numbers game to see how many people could survive uh, every year. We'd hire 15, you know, four of them would make it long-term in our business, and that was kind of our business model. As we progressed over time, what we started seeing is that the people that were succeeding were the people that came in with more experience. I will use myself as an an example, and this is not to pat myself on the back, but when I started in the recruiting business, I had 10 previous years as a professional. So if you remember, when I started, I also started with a lot of young people that were quite a few years younger than me, and I was able to pick up this business Pretty quickly, number one, because I had dealt with professionals before, so I could talk the talk. I understood business um, more than the, the young people did, and I had a confidence. I, you know, it was easy for me to carry on a conversation with a business professional. I wasn't repeating a script, and you know, I, I always think of you, Tony, when I think back to the script. Because we were so drilled into – we had to go – when we made a phone call, we had to use a script. And I i don't know if you remember this, but I just was always apprehensive about using a script. Yeah. I, I was like, I'm going to sound canned. I just need to sound authentic and natural. And a lot of people laughed at me when they first started listening to me on the phone. And like you said, we were all on top of each other. but. I could never go by a script, and you know I, I'm talking. I'm explaining this to give you some background of how we ultimately change. In about 2002, 2003, after the 2001 recession, we started hiring people that were more sophisticated. And as we were doing that, the level of the searches that we were working on went up the ladder. And as as, that start, as as we started going from working on more staffing position and lower management level positions to directors, senior directors and VPs, we decided to transition our model to a retained model, meaning that we were no longer going to work for free. We weren't going to take on a search and, and hope to get paid at the end. And, and what also happened in our transition is that our process became more sophisticated and it was a little bit longer. So we were more about quality than how quickly we could fill a search because in the in the contingency model it's really who can get the resumes to their client first. Well we're we have never considered our and you know this, Bell Oaks, we worked More of a, I would say, more of a uh, retainer process, even at the contingency level, in that we weren't a resume service. We were actually meeting with candidates in person, and that's how I learned the business. It was, you know, meeting someone in person, face to face. I know now a lot of Zoom meetings are going on, but I mean, it was really, you know, it was that interpersonal meeting which getting to know candidates very well and very deeply that that helped elevate our business. And as time went on and we started going up the ladder, it became very obvious that Not only was it more profitable for us because you got a lot bigger fees for larger positions, but the time and effort we were putting into the process wasn't competitive in the contingency world because that was all about getting resumes to our client. And what we also realized, and this was a very big factor in our transition to a retainer firm, is we were competing against other search firms for a search that we were working on. And that no longer worked for us because our model of how we would how we would evaluate talent was so much more sophisticated than a contingency firm. And it was longer and we were losing out on placements because we were doing it right. But other firms were throwing out resumes and was kind of throwing things up to the wall and seeing what sticks. That was never our methodology at Bell Oaks. And if we used our methodology, we were losing out in the contingency world. So we began to transition to a retainer model. And all these years later, we, 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 do, we don't work on contingency search. We only work at the uh, – we only do high-level positions and we only uh, – we work on retainer.
1: How did you move your clients or did you lose them? Did you just have to say, guys, look, we're, we're not going to be a resource for you anymore. That you know, You've got to keep revenue coming in. So, so how did you make that actual change?
0: Well, some of the clients we were able to convert, and I'll tell you how the ones that we were able to convert were ones that loved the work we did for them. In other words, They were loyal clients who saw what we did and did well, and since we had already proved ourselves, they were willing to pay us a fee up front, even though that wasn't what they were doing before, because we had already proved ourselves. There were some clients that we didn't take with us because we were primarily working on volumes of staffing roles, and that no longer fit our model. So it was kind of, I would say it was about 50-50. We were able to transition clients that we had a good, solid record with, and some just didn't fit the model anymore. But to be honest over time a lot of the clients that we had when we were under contingency no longer fit our they weren't they weren't clients that we wanted to have because they saw us as a staffing Firm, somebody who was great for a low level manager and below. And at the time, we were trying to elevate our business. So, going after new clients, you know, all of us that survived that transition were good salespeople. So, we all had great relationships and we had started building solid reputations in, in, in the business world. And to transition the Bell Oaks model from a contingency firm to more of a retained methodology, it's all about the people. And it was me and a few of my colleagues that were able to all, you know, we were all very successful in the business. And I think we were very fortunate. It was a great time in the economy back in the mid 2000s. If you, that was during the housing boom, the economy was rolling. And that, I I think that helped us as well because the search business was so healthy at the time.
1: There is such enormous pressure for companies to hire talent now. Uh, To your point, even though there's technology, you cannot replace, you know, that authentic, that, you know, natural um, connection you make with people, and I think if if a company is looking to make a transition, this could be a time to do it. Even though you see record unemployment, uh, it's not necessarily record unemployment. You know, at the levels that we're talking about. Um,
0: yeah, absolutely not. I, I'll just say this: I, what we're experiencing now because of COVID is artificial. It's not because companies, you know, companies were so healthy going into COVID. We have already seen the demand in our business pick up dramatically. And I suspect as COVID begins to fade, there's going to be a boom of pent up demand in our industry. And I I mean, I don't think there'll be a better time to be in the executive search world than what's going to occur as soon as COVID begins to, you know, to go away.
1: It was uh, the COVID, the shutdown, the layoffs were forced upon businesses. It wasn't a natural outcome. So right. that's what you're really saying is that when there is a you know a return to you know senses, let's just say that because uh, the vaccine obviously will be out and people's fear hopefully will will diminish. Right. Uh, well, that makes sense. And like I said, I really do believe next year. 2021 is going to be very very big. So, okay, that that's good. I think I I see why you made the change. I think you also have told me that you you also saw a change a need in terms of uh, you know, not putting junior recruiters, you know, in with clients right away. It sounds like as you elevated your business and your clientele, It didn't make sense to have, you know, junior recruiters, you know, managing the clients the way you and I did from the very, very beginning.
0: Exactly. One of of the big changes we made is back in the day when you and I worked together, every person at Bell Oaks handled both sides of of the desk. And, and, And in our industry, the definition of that is you're both marketing for new clients and you're also recruiting and filling your own searches. Our, the way we are set up at Bell Oaks now is like a retained firm. We have partners and associate partners that are responsible for marketing, bringing in clients, and managing clients. And then we have a whole team of recruiters who have no marketing responsibilities whatsoever. Their job is to help the partners and associate partners fill the searches. They do the recruiting. They do, you know, I mean, we're, we're set up that way. Um, we also have a different type of um, the, the way we compensate our individuals are different than back in those days because we've got salaried employees now. And if you remember back in those days, all of us kind of worked on a draw. I, I wouldn't call it a salary and, you know, made most of our money by commissions. Well, now we have salaried recruiters who, again, their, their their job is to recruit and not to bring in new business or manage our clients. So,
1: Would you do anything different the way you guys handled it you, and when you look back?
0: I would say this, I think everybody could always look back and, and do things differently uh, or, or do things better, you know, kind of once you've been through the experience. I think the biggest difference I would do or would make now is I would have pivoted quicker um, because this transition to executive search, I think this fits me better. I think it fits our firm better and it's much more lucrative.
1: When you're hiring you know, these leaders and that's the focus, you know, on on the leadership band, Let's kind of get into your actual expertise, the uh, attraction, the identifying, the understanding of what is a top performer, Um, maybe some do's and don'ts of attracting top performers. So if you're a hiring manager and you're trying to figure out, you know, how to make your process better, this is something you want to hear.
0: Well, so so I I would say the first thing is our company, when you think about our clients, our clients are the person that's actually hiring this individual. One of the main differences between contingency search and, and and the level that we work in executive search is we don't, you know, while we'll work with an HR group, we don't work through HR. We work through, you know, if I'm hiring a CFO for a company, I'm working with the president of the company. I'm not working with their HR. You know, their HR group will be involved in logistics and certainly will have some level of involvement but I can't be I can't recruit for a CFO for a company unless I'm dealing with the president who that person's going to work with. Why? Number one, I need to understand exactly what type of person this president is. I, I need to understand his personality. How does he manage? What does he need? How can this person complement him? I can't get that through HR. So I'd say the number one thing in looking for high-level talent is you got to be working with the person who's actually hiring this individual. And if you're not, you're not going to be successful in the search.
1: And that's really never changed it really for hasn't. us. It, right? it really hasn't. It, it, that that really hasn't changed. Okay, so let's think now about the client that you're supporting okay. or the the hiring manager. What are some do's and don'ts for a company? What, what should they be doing to do a better job of attracting and, and hiring top performers?
0: Well, I think – Number one is it. most of the top performers out there are not actively looking. So they're passive candidates, meaning that we find them, we identify them, and sell them on a potential opportunity that's better. If they go interview with a company, you know, the company has to recognize there's a difference between interviewing somebody who's who's – Interviewing them as well, as opposed to interviewing someone who's actively looking. And so one of the things that is most important is that anybody who's trying to hire strong talent is selling their own company and their own opportunity and is is, is recognizing that the person that they're interviewing is interviewing them as well. And it is their job to present a very positive position on the company as well as the opportunity where that opportunity can take them and why this p- particular uh, place is a great place to work and why this person should take this opportunity seriously. Where I've seen um, hiring managers really screw up in interviews is they, they focus too much on drilling somebody with questions and forget that this person doesn't even have to be there. This person was recruited. And again, most, I would say about 95% of the people that are firm places were not actively looking when we approach them about the opportunity.
1: Right, so they're so they're passive. So you see that there's the first uh, that the first point there is the the hiring leader has to understand: is this an applicant or is this someone who's been recruited? Were they passive? Exactly, because they need to be treated differently. I mean, can you maybe talk about you know the differences of maybe how you would like how you would even approach someone your style stylistically
0: stylistically? So, so an applicant, which is basically someone who's actively looking they're going to talk to anybody about a potential job i mean it's you know some of them have a s- sense of desperation others are just you know they're go- they're going to they're they're going to be available they're going to make they they're they're accessible they're easy to reach they'll talk to you they'll they'll they give you whatever you need to sell themselves and they're constantly selling themselves when you approach somebody who's not actively looking and is actually in a successful job and is not somebody who who, who needs to be looking or needs to have these conversations you've got to ca- capture their attention with something that they see Something they, they find they have to hear about. And that's the, how our, our recruiters approach people. They, they plant a seed of you, it would be in your benefit to hear me out. And what, what typically happens in those cases is they'll get a spark of something that they think, well, I should probably listen to this re- recruiter, even though I'm very happy where I am. Everything's not perfect and you should always have, you know, keep an open eye on what's out there in the market. And so when we're approaching passive candidates, we have a whole way that we approach them that is entirely different than somebody who sends us their resume and says they're actively looking. And it's all around, having an edge about what the new opportunity can be. And what I'll also say is 99.9% of the professionals out there, it's not a money motivator. It's about career. People do not make change, rarely make changes because of money. Money's always important. Everybody always wants an increase when they make a change. And yes, that that, that is something that's important. But people change careers because of a better career opportunity, something they think is be- is in the best interest of their future career. And the people that don't make changes um, for that reason are not the candidates you should be recruiting. It's a red flag.
1: I think you've also kind of touched on a little bit of that secret sauce, and that is knowing that you've got to get them interested with a hook, something that gets their attention. And I can tell you what it's not. It's not sending them a job description. Barf. yeah <laughs> I mean imagine imagine having to read through and try to decipher what the opportunity is just based on some HR lingo it's um, that is a recipe for failure
0: well let me let me go farther than that that, that, that is so true, but let me go farther than that. We work on a lot of highly confidential searches because we, part of what, what we're an expert in doing is replacing non performing executives. And so a lot of the searches that we're working on, we don't even tell, we won't even t- disclose who our client is until we've interviewed somebody and we know they're qualified and we know it's a good match. So the question is how do you get an executive that is performing successfully at a company? to actually hear you out when you won't tell them who your client is and you won't give them specifics. You do it by presenting an opportunity that sounds to them like it's something they need to pay attention to. And I will tell you, we put a lot of time and effort of making sure we understand our clients well so we can talk about an opportunity in a way that, like you said, gets gets someone hooked that I need to hear more. And that happens, I would say, about I would say about 50% of the searches we work on are confidential, and we don't disclose our client until later on in the recruiting period. I'll also say this. If you use a company's name to bait somebody, in other words, if, you know, there's the big-name companies like Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, Home Depot, those are all big names. Everybody knows who they are. That's – a lot of times my methodology and my my team's methodology is not to throw a big name out there because if the only reason someone's interested in an opportunity is because they like the company name then they they're not they're not going to evaluate the opportunity properly what i like to do is sell the opportunity in other words talk about where the position um you know, is aligned within the infrastructure of the company? What is the opportunity overall? What's the team like? Who are they leading? Where's the company trying to go? What are they trying to do with this position? If all of those things in line with what is compelling to a candidate, then that's a much better way to get someone hooked than saying, I'm recruiting for Coca-Cola.
1: What does a leader want? You said it's not always about money. So what do you think? What are the top two or three things
0: I think the, the number one thing for a leader is the ability to be impactful. Somebody who's got an opportunity where they can come in and have substantial impact um, almost immediately, where they look at a situation and say, based on the experience that I have, this company needs what I have. And, you know, most executives, most senior level people, they have been there, done that, and they look for opportunities that they consider fun where they can actually execute and do things that they enjoy doing. And if there's a problem at a company or they have a situation or they have challenges at a certain organization and an executive looks at the position and says, now all the things that I've done would help me make you guys successful. And by the way, I'd have a lot of fun doing it. I would say that's the number one thing an executive looks for. All the other things such as stature and money and all that, that's all important. But when you get to a certain point, point in your career, and I can speak for this personally, it's about whether you enjoy what you're doing. That's the number one thing executives are looking for.
1: What advice would you give to a new recruiter who's starting out now?
0: I think I think the most important thing about being successful in this business is, is being able to listen, have strong listening skills, and really... Get, and having a strong inter, intellectual curiosity about people because I think the, the people that I have seen not fail in this business are people that actually don't they, – they don't have – they have a very low intention span and they're not intellectually curious about people and what they do. They just because, you know, when I think back to my early days in this business, the thing that I knew was going to make this work really quickly is the conversations that I was having with candidates and clients. I was really going deep with both sides, getting to know people, understanding what they were doing. And even if I didn't completely understand somebody and somebody's position I always was a very intent listener and had a very strong intellectual curiosity about what somebody did. For instance, early in my career, if you would have said, I want you to go out and hire a supply chain expert, that was like Chinese to me. I mean, I had been in accounting. I you know, I, I knew that the supply chain. I kind of knew what that was, but I didn't really. Today, I'm an expert at a supply chain role. Why? Because I've been taught by all the in- candidates that have been senior SVPs of supply chain from every different type of company, and I really understand the role. And it's because I was curious, because I actually enjoyed um, hearing about what people do. I always tell my youngest recruiters or my newest recruiters, um, you're going to learn so much in your first year, it's going to be like you're an MBA. It's going to be you're going to learn more about business, how businesses are arranged, what the organizational chart is in companies. And you're going to learn about what people actually do. You understand their title and you may understand a general job description, but you're going to hear what these people do day to day. So as a young recruiter, if you if those things don't interest you, don't go into recruiting. Period.
1: Does that make sense? I think what you just said, what, it makes a lot of sense about being intellectually curious because the, the candidates actually educate you. Absolutely. And then 100%. you share that education with the next candidate you talk to. And that kind of builds your credibility a little bit.
0: Exactly. The other thing, and this is a lesson I learned from my father years ago, and it plays off it, – it, it, I think it's – relevant in every career, but it's particularly relevant in our business. When you're, when you get into the business, you're new, you're fresh, you're green, you don't know a lot of what you're doing, but I think what made me successful pretty quickly, and it was probably because of my maturity level coming into this business at 30 years old, as opposed to 22 years old, I was able to go back and forth with a candidate who had no idea how long I had been in the business or what I knew or what I didn't know. And I was able to fake it pretty well and get through conversations both with clients and candidates because I sounded like I knew what I was doing. And I think young recruiters or people that are early in this business, you have to be able to carry on conversations, recognizing that you're not going to know it all, especially in your first year in the business, but you can't show that. You have to be able to get, have a nice back and forth where the person on the other side of the conversation doesn't know how how much of a rookie you are. And the ones that can't do that eventually have a very hard time succeeding
1: in this business. And that's a tall task. I mean that's it a is. tall ta- – it's easy to say that. It's, it's definitely harder. Um, what, what, do you think that there's uh, a role for the you know the gift of gab, or can you just you know can you just really enjoy people and be a great listener and not you know not have to you know be the the life of the party? Because uh, there is a misconception or maybe a, a, a thought that you've got to be an A type personality. Have you seen other styles be successful?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I've seen all styles be successful. It's more about being able to engage in an authentic conversation and you don't have to be high energy or, or a type a personality to have a very authentic conversation, but you have to have, a, you know, in this business, whether you're doing contingency search at a lower level or you're doing an executive level, you have to be able to think, um, on your feet. You have to be able to read people and read situations and you have to be able to go back and forth and sound professional. and credible. I have, twenty five year old women interviewing fifty five year old business executives, and it works and why does it work because after the proper training the, the end of you know my my team my, my recruiters have the confidence to carry on a conversation and they 're not intimidated by someone who 's twice their age and certainly at a different level in their career and you know it 's interesting because I train my when my recruiters are interviewing someone they are running the interview. I don't care how old, how much older or how much more experienced is the candidate that they're interviewing. They are to control that interview. And quite frankly, if they can't control the interview or if they're getting, if someone's talking down to them or being condescending because they're not as old or as experienced as they expect they should be screened by, then that's a red flag anyway, but you've got to have somebody with that kind of confidence. I, I, I don't think you can be in this business if you don't have natural confidence. You have to be able to engage naturally. That's what it is. Okay. Being able to engage
1: naturally with somebody. I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen next year?
0: You know, I, I think about this constantly, and I think one of the things that I keep seeing happening, and I think COVID is going to further this, this along, the baby boomers are retiring in a massive at a massive scale now. And I think COVID has pushed that. I think there are going to be a lot of people that is, the world returns to normal and the workforce returns to normal and people start getting back to normal, I think you're going to see a lot of retirements in the next year or so. Um, Because of COVID. And I think our industry is set up for a boom at all levels. I honestly think that. I think what's going to happen, you you and I have discussed this earlier in the conversation, this year or next year, 2021, could be a boom year because of pent-up demand. But you also have to factor in that there's going to be a lot of retiring people. Um, It could be partially because of health reasons related to COVID or just in general, you know, why come back after, you know, if you're getting close to retirement anyway, why not go ahead and do it? And as the baby boomers come out of the, the workforce and that is happening more and more every year, there's going to be an influx of talent. In, in in the industry, you know, in the market in general. And you really don't have enough people coming up that are as highly skilled at the executive level, especially that are ready to backfill a lot of these baby boomers that are retiring. So to me, that is something I've been looking at for years. And I think that is really going to affect our industry a lot over the next year or two.
1: Final question. How do you keep yourself educated?
0: I I like business magazines, so I'm always looking at different types of business periodicals like The Economist or Business Week. Um, Locally, I I spend a lot of time with the Atlanta Business Chronicle, I just think is a great resource just to kind of keep a handle on what's going on in in the business world. But I'm also – I also – I'm a news junkie, and when – part of what I'm looking at when I'm looking at the news is economic news. I've always been a, you know, a miniature economist. My background is in finance, so I understand economics pretty well. And watching the economy and what's happening in terms of how the economy is being affected by everything, whether it be COVID, whether it be a presidential election, whether it be um, you know the latest move in Congress, I'm always watching those things because that helps me with the trends of what's going to happen in business. And to me, that's my way to, to stay on top of things
1: well mr Warshaw it has been a pleasure to see how you've successfully pivoted Bell Oaks from contingency into retainer you guys are very very successful and some great tips on some do's and don'ts in terms of you know how, how to handle applicants versus these passive uh, passive candidates I guess we'll have to check in in 2021 to see if uh, if this boom has 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 taken place
0: but- I, I hope it is. I, I really believe that once the COVID um, scenario or situation has begins to subside, and I think we have to think with the vaccines that it will, um, and also getting out of the politics of COVID, which obviously was extended by having a presidential election. With all that going away in 2021, I feel like we're going to be set up, especially in the second half of the year, for some kind of boom. And let's let's just all hope.
1: exactly from from your mouth to god's ears
0: exactly exactly
1: all right i hope you all enjoy this winners winners are going to win and todd certainly has done just that thank you todd my pleasure tony always good to talk to you